Well, I'm excited to get to teach. I'm pretty stoked. I generally try to have about 40 slides for class. 40 seems to be the, the good number. 45 if I'm going pretty fast. I got 72 today. So let's get started. That's just a sign I'm excited about teaching. Don't worry. Uh, I'm also excited to be in church. So we will end in time to, to get to church. Whenever I'm speaking, I always have a target audience. I, as I'm preparing this class, I envision you. Uh, I think about who you are. I was talking to Dr. Sherry here before class started. We've got different people with different backgrounds, with different occupations, and, and, and different ages, and different genders. And we, we've got such a wide variety that I try really hard to think about my audience. Hey, Doug. See, that's my audience. That's Doug. If you need a Lexus, go to Doug. Um, that's totally free. My, my advice, not the Lexus. Now, all different people, all different backgrounds, and here we are together. But I try to figure out my target audience. Well, I do the same thing with the video thoughts for the day. A lot of you watch those. You send me nice notes about them. You don't have to watch them all. I don't watch them all. In fact, I, I even make them, but I don't, I'm not tuned in half the time. Um, it's a joke. I'm always paying attention to what I'm doing. But my video thought for the day, I always have a target audience. Now, you might wonder who that is. That's our almost two-year-old grandson watching me on a video thought for the day. Shall we watch him together? I would say, Dr. J wins it all! Ball didn't go in, I would say, that's the end of the first half. Never liked to lose. I wanted to be Dr. J because I idolized him. He was amazing. <laughs> the basketball just seemed unworldly to me. And and as we grow up, hopefully, our idols uh, change. Or maybe better yet, as we grow up, we lose our idols. Doesn't mean we don't respect, doesn't mean we don't think great, cool, awesome, things like that. But idol, I don't like to use that word. Let me give you the passage for today. It's out of Psalms 135, verses 17 and 18. No, I think it starts at 15, but it goes up through about 18. So, thank you, John Henry, for that. Uh, by the way, while I'm mentioning that, he will be two next weekend. And while I'm in trial in Cleveland, we're going to go to that weekend to Florida. So, Pastor Jarrett will be teaching class next Sunday. And uh, I thank him for that uh, in advance, but I, that's, uh, uh, I'll be gone for that with Becky to go catch my target audience. Now, it's no different in the time of Paul than it is today. Paul had a target audience. And today we're going to be looking at a passage in Philippians 3. And in this passage, Paul had a target audience. His target audience were Gentiles who were hearing the call of Judaizers. 
Now, those words may mean nothing to you. Gentiles means non-Jews, the pagans, the goyim. Um, hearing the call because coming into those Greek church lives were people who were trying to persuade the Greeks, the Greek Christians, that they would have a tighter relationship to God if they would follow Jewish law. Okay? That's what a Judaizer was. A Judaizer was someone who would take the Gentile believers and have them believe that if they would follow certain key Jewish rituals, be circumcised if they're males, eat kosher, no more ham and cheese, if they would follow, uh, observe Sabbath, Shabbat, if they would follow certain Jewish rituals, then that would make them tighter within the covenant of Abraham. You close to God? You want to be closer? You want to really be right with him? Then you need to follow the law that he gave to Moses in all of the ritual details. Don't just follow the moral codes as Jesus and the church have explained them, but, but follow the rituals. You don't have to sacrifice. That's been done by Jesus. But come on, let's get these other ones down. It brings you in tighter. And that's what was being taught by some people who probably were missionaries coming into Paul's church that he had started in Philippi. So if that's the target audience for Paul for this passage we're looking at today, I've entitled today's class as Paul on Target. Not to be confused with Paul on Target, but rather Paul on Target, okay? So we're going to do three things in class. First, we're going to look at the challenge. Yeah, that's Paul on Target. Um, uh, and lawyer in me? How about this? See that? That's a little R with a circle. That's a registered trademark of Target. They can't sue me. I put it up there. <laughs> the challenge we're going to look at first, then we're going to look at the goal, then we're going to look at the process of Paul dealing with this Judaizer question. Now, let's start with the challenge, and to do that, we're not starting with a clean slate. We need to take it in context of what I talked about last week. So I'm going to beep, 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 back it up, and we're going to put the context up here. Starts chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, or next point, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. It's a good thing for you. So look out for the dogs. Um, the, remember, the, the Jews would call Gentiles dogs, but Paul's here ta is calling the Jews that are the, the, those trying to make the Gentiles Jewish, he's calling them dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the ones who are doing evil. Look out for those who are not circumcising the flesh, but mutilating the flesh. We're the circumcision who worship 
by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and don't put confidence in, in the flesh. And then Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. This isn't me just saying, well, hey, I can't do it anyway. So, you know, that, this is not a situation of me, Mark, saying to my wife, Becky, as she's going into labor, hey, this is going to be a breeze. <laughs> and she's looking at me saying, you've never been where I am there, hotshot. Okay, and that, that would be true in that scenario. This is not Paul saying, look, this is not me saying, oh, don't worry about that because I can't do it. Paul says, I got, if you want to do that game, you want to play the Jew card, I play it in spades. I got it. If the ace of spades is the highest card in a bridge game, I'm playing the ace of spades. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Also, man, I can play that game. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And this word dokeo that's translated thinks, the way Paul's using it here, he's challenging them. I like what Carl, uh, well, first uh, Peter Thomas O'Brien says about this. Not only can Paul match the grounds that the Jew or Judaizer had for boasting in himself. He can outstrip them. Paul's grounds for boasting in his own pedigree and achievements, in fact, uh, are in fact greater than the credentials any Judaizer could produce. And then Karl Barth looks at that word dokeo and says, Paul's saying, if it came to that, I could also find a few things to say of my own cleanness, my own industry, my own circumcision. Thus, it's to sound like a challenge if anyone else thinks he can rely on flesh. I'm much better. This is, look, when Paul's reading that in the Greek, you, any of y'all watch Food Network? What? Come on, any of y'all watch? Do any of y'all eat? Okay. There's a show, Throwdown, with Bobby Flay, where he just shows up, and he has a throwdown. He, has a cha he challenges some chef who's got a signature dish to go one-on-one -on -one with anonymous tasting at the end of the day. It's a throwdown. It's a, let's see. But ask yourself this. Are you ready for a throwdown? That's it. Are you ready for a throwdown? Okay, y'all don't watch Food Network, so you don't get that side of a challenge. How about this? Next song I'm about to sing is from the Broadway musical Annie Get Your Gun. Madeline, we're singing this song together. No, I'm singing this next song for Madeline. It's a duet. We're singing it together. No, Blair, listen. I'm singing this next song. From the Broadway musical, Annie, get your gun, and you are simply helping me. <laughs> okay, shrimpy, I bet I can sing it better than you. No, you can't. We'll just see about that.
cartridge. I can catch a sparrow with a bow and arrow. I can live on bread and cheese. And only on that? Yes, so can a rat. Any note you can sing, I can sing higher. I can sing any note higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can. can do I can do better I can do anything better than you Paul says you really want to play that game do those Judaizers even want to get in the ring with me no they don't he says because whatever they think I got more now I'm looking at my PowerPoint here and I got a problem because something's about to appear that needs to appear in a different way and I don't know how to fix it so I'm just going to tell you right now that you have to ignore what's about to appear on the bottom of the screen do not read the bottom of the screen okay okay no I can tell by looking at you without my glasses on you're all planning to read it I'm going to set this out in a little different form than it reads in your Bibles because Paul's giving a list. And if Paul were writing it today, I think he would use this feature. He says, I got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, there's a hint of taunting in the way Paul says this, if not outright sarcasm. This word that's translated eight day, on the eighth day, octahemeros, is... Uh, Two words put together, but it's a made-up word. You won't find it in any Greek literature anywhere. Paul just made it up because he's kind of gigging them a little bit. What it means, octa, like an octagon, octa means eight, hemeros means day. So it's translated very nicely on the eighth day because that's what Paul's talking about, but he's, that's those are real words. So I like to translate it. He says, uh, uh, on circumcision, I'm an eight-dayer. I'm just kind of making up a word. I'm an eight-dayer, and that's a big deal. Leviticus 12.3, the law says you circumcise on the eighth day, but that's not the first place. You can go back to Genesis 17.12. God told Abraham, you circumcise him on the eighth day says, I'm an eight-dayer. This is not, oh, gee, uh, I became a Christian at the age of 30, and then someone said, oh, you better go back and get uh, circumcised. He says, I, 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 I'm, I'm there, man. I'm, I'm on the law of this. I got it. Circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. Say, well, what's the big deal there? Well, it's a big deal. First of all, Paul means that I'm talking as my racial descent. I'm not a proselyte. I'm not someone who became a Jew later in life to be part of a Christian movement. He says, I am a, of the people of Israel, genus here. We get genealogy from it. That's a G-E-N. He says, that's my genealogy. That's where I come from. I didn't convert into Judaism. And Paul doesn't call himself a Jew. 
he calls himself an Israelite. He's of the people of Israel. Israel, Jew could have a negative connotation at the time. Israel are the people of promise. They're the people of the covenant and all that that ascribes with it. So he says, look, I'm of the people of Israel. That's not all. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now Benjamin, Benjamin was an awesome tribe. The ravenous wolf and the blessings of Jacob. Benjamin was the tribe from which, if you go to 1 Samuel 9, the first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. What was his name? Saul. Paul was named after him, had his Hebrew name. And so the first king of Israel, Shaul. Paul says, you know, I'm I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, here's something bizarre. This also means Paul's able to trace his lineage all the way back. I, I, I don't know how far you could trace your lineage. I've tried. I'm in the process of trying. It's hard to do. I mean, it's easy to get back to mom. <clears throat> I can go back to my great-grandmother. Uh, I did her funeral when she died. So, I mean, I, I knew Grandmother Davis. And I heard tales about her family. But to try to go back to a great-great-grandfather uh, or mother or a great-great-great-grandfather or mother, even with all of our tools, it's really tough. But Paul was able to trace his lineage all the way back. You say, wow, well, you know, Jews are big about that because they would keep track of that. That is true. But during the captivity, when a bunch of them were shipped off for basically 100 years to Babylon and all the temple records were destroyed, made it a whole lot tougher. And a lot of people lost their ability to trace themselves back to a certain tribe. I'm in trial right now. The special master in our case, his last name is Cohen. He's able to trace his lineage back. Maybe he doesn't know how, but the Cohenites were the priests. So he knows he's of the tribe of Levi by his name. But it's, it's, it's something that Paul's saying, hey, I'm not some Johnny come lately. I got the pedigree. I got the lineage. Then he goes a step further and he says, not only that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now you say, well, what is that? Well, that means something. Hebraios ex Hebraion. Hebraios seems to indicate that Paul spoke Hebrew. It also seems to indicate that his family kept close ties with Jerusalem, even though Paul is from Tarsus, which is over in modern Turkey. As a kid, he was in Jerusalem all the time. So the parents would send him there. He had family in Jerusalem. He studied in Jerusalem. So Paul's able to speak to the people. If you go back and you look at these passages, whoops, you go back and look at these passages in Acts, you will see that Paul addresses the people in Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic. He was multilingual. Oh, I have a doubt in my mind. Paul had at least four languages extremely well under his belt. Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. 
and Paul was, was, but Paul's able to say, you know, remember, in the Mediterranean world, where Paul's writing this letter, which is, is in a heartbeat, heart, yeah, the, the, the heart of, of the Greek world, the Jews in that part of the world used a Greek translation of the Old Testament because they couldn't read Hebrew too well. If you come over culturally from another country, studies still indicate, in fact, one of our daughters wrote a master's thesis on this, that, that the first generation that's born in, let's say you come over from Mexico, you speak Spanish, you likely speak some English. Your kids who were born here will speak English and probably speak Spanish because you spoke Spanish at home. But their kids... Two generations now, the second generation in America, probably don't speak Spanish hardly at all. And that's very typical across cultural lines. So you've got people who've been living in the Greek world, Jews that have been living in the Greek world for hundreds of years. Most of them don't speak Hebrew. Most of them just read the Old Testament in Greek. Paul says, man, I'm reading it in the original language. My family, we still pay our temple tax. We keep our ties tight with Israel, with Jerusalem. So Paul's saying, look, I got a stud sheet here that, that, that's going to beat anybody else's in the throwdown. And if you look at these first four things that Paul gave here, all four of these show an, a pedigree of orthodoxy. Paul didn't choose any of this. This was Paul's through his birth. His parents circumcised him on the eighth day. He didn't drive himself to the doctor, or I guess they had rabbis do the bris. He didn't, hey, rabbi, I'm eight days old, come here. He didn't choose to be of the people of Israel. He didn't choose to be of the tribe of Benjamin. He didn't choose to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is his upbringing. Now, he gives three more reasons on his stud sheet, and these are his individual choice. First, he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Pharisee comes from a, one of two different words. It depends on which scholar you're reading, but the words are closely related. It's, it's, it's basically the idea of someone who's choosing to follow the law very carefully. Pharisee coming from the idea of the word of choice. This was the strictest sect within Judaism. They lived in the law. They lived with the law. They lived under the law. These are the ones that gave Jesus such grief because they're always arguing the law with him. The Pharisees are like persnickety on steroids. I was trying a case one time in Lubbock, Texas. And right before the trial, we do a, a jury selection. And, and the night before we picked the jury, I was meeting with some friends of mine from high school. And I said, uh, uh, you know, here's our list of jurors. I've been gone from Lubbock so long, I don't know a lot of people. Do you all know any of these people? And if so, tell me about them. And a buddy of mine and Becky's, Sam, lost. We're going down the list. He says, that fellow right there. He says, he's a deacon at the Baptist Church. He's an ex-cop. And the uh, best thing I can tell you is he would write his mother a speeding ticket for doing 56 and a 55. And I said, really? He says, yep, he's a big leader. He says, you put him on the jury, he's, he's going to be your foreperson. 
I said, you think so? I said, oh, I don't think so. I know so. He said, he'll walk back in the jury room where they're supposed to elect a four-person. And he'll say, okay, I'm going to be the foreman. Who wants to be my second? And I said, well, but he's a follow-the-law guy? Oh, yeah. And I said, that's who we want. So I got him on the jury. He was the four-person. Followed the law. Had no trouble. He had been a good Pharisee. I mean, they live by the law. They'd write their mama a ticket for doing 56 in a 55. They didn't just tithe their money if they went out and picked mint to put in their mint tea. They had 10 leaves, take that one to the temple. That's how bad they were. They would tithe mint and cumin. So Paul says, that's, the way I, that's who I was. The strictest sect there is, that's me. The one who cares about the law as much as anybody, more than anybody, that's me. Now, you think, well, there must have been gazillions of those. No, Josephus thinks that the scholars look at it about 6,000. Not a lot of people want to live that harshly. But that's Paul. He says, not only that, as to zeal, do you know what the Greek word is for zeal? Zeal. Um, Zelos. We get zeal straight from it. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, this word zeal, zelos, it could be a bad or a good thing. I mean, there are people who are zealous for good things and people who are zealous of bad things. In Galatians 5.20, Paul calls it a, a, a part of the, the, a, an, an evil thing. But it also can be a good thing. It's all how you do it. Whoops, the good thing would be like in John 2, 17, where Jesus says, zeal for my father's house consumed me. Paul just means as to zeal, as to, to the drive. I was so driven that I was persecuting the church. I was willing to hurt people in the name of God. Now you say, Paul... How could you even think such a thing? Please understand where Pharisees got their start. Several hundred years before Christ, in the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were forces that tried to make the Jewish nation become Greek. They insisted not only on the Greek language, but they insisted on worshiping by Greek ways. In fact, they took, Antiochus Epiphanes took a pig, an unclean pig, into the temple to sacrifice on the altar. And most Jews were just kind of, well, you know, they are stronger than us, and, you know, we'll, we'll stay clean in our home, but... You know, you, you don't want to fight City Hall. You know. But there were a group of Jews who said, no. It was our failure to follow the law that caused us to go into captivity. We're not going to do that. We're going to follow the law. And they rebelled. And these brothers, the Maccabeus brothers, led a rebellion. And they stopped it dead in its tracks. And out of that came the Pharisee movement that said, we're going to follow the law. It's failure to follow the law that caused us to be thrown into captivity. 
and, and, and the Jews that won't follow the law, we're going we're gonna to do something about them. We're going to stand up for what God gave Moses. Paul says, I was willing to so stand up for the law that I saw the church as something that was destructive. And so I, I went after it. Then Paul's got this really weird statement. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Now you say, but wait a minute. In Romans, doesn't Paul say that there's no one who's without sin? Yes. Paul's talking here about the 613 or however many laws there were in the Torah. And then the oral law as well that supplemented it. And Paul says, from an outward objective way, my objective life, not his inner thoughts. Because he says in Romans, you know, I, I coveted. You know, I, he, he, he knows his inward life. But he says, in terms of keeping the law objectively, Paul did it. He's like that rich young ruler that said to Jesus, when Jesus says, follow the law. The, the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you should follow the law. Rich young ruler says, well, I've done that. And then Jesus explained he's talking about the law of the heart, not simply the externals. So Jesus said, oh, good, sell everything you've got and give it to, your poor, to, give it to the poor. And the guy says, well, I, I'm not doing that. You know, so Paul's not saying here he was perfect in a moral sense before God. Paul's saying here, you want to compare my life to theirs? I followed the law. I followed it. I did what it said to do. I was one of the people who would pick ten leaves of mint and take one to the temple. I followed the law. That's, that's the objective law that I followed. So if these first four are Paul's orthodox pedigree, these last three are Paul's personal accomplishments. And he says, you put all of that stuff together. And here's what he adds. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, the way Paul writes that in the Greek... He, he, he's got, he, let's do that again. Hold on, you weren't ready for it. You didn't know it was coming. I did. I was proud of that one. That took some time. <clears throat> Paul's writing in the Greek has a Greek feature called ascendaton. You've heard me talk about it before. It's where Paul doesn't put in all those little extra words that made things sing so pretty in the Greek because Greek was sort of a sung language. And Paul doesn't put those things in there. And when he doesn't and you're reading it, it comes out really, I won't say harsh, but it comes out so direct and forthright and it draws attention to what you're saying. And so Paul writes that way when he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And Paul's using some interesting words here. These words gain and loss, kirde and zamian in the forms that they're in there. 
those are particular words that you would find in the marketplace. Paul's using market terminology. We, anybody in here have any bookkeeping, accounting, business training? Okay, you'll know this. This is losses and profits, uh, debits and credits, assets and liabilities. That's what this is. This is that language. Kyrdos means profits. Um, uh, uh, Zamia are losses in the marketplace. And so he's using that marketplace terminology. And he says, whatever profits I had, all of the positives, all of the goods, I counted them as losses. I moved them from the asset to the liability column. I moved them from credits to debits. What seems to make money for everybody else, I counted as a sinkhole. If you look at it, uh, uh, it's, it's interesting here. These are just little nuances of the Greek. The ending on, on uh, gain is a, is a plural ending. So we don't translate it whatever gains, plural, I had, but it could be, it should be. You, you need to understand gain is in the plural form. All of those benefits, all of them. And then loss, I count as a loss. That's singular. So all of the gains, one big loss. You can't say, well, some of the gains were actually sort of good. No, all of them, loss. Everything that profiteth a man, boom, I put in the detriment column. And that's what Paul has to say. All of his gains are a loss. Let's keep going. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted. Um, that's, that's uh, uh, again, the way the word's being used here. That, that's the idea of a, um, uh-oh, sorry. I've got a slide coming up. Now it's just going to bounce up there. That's the idea of, of, of a perfect tense. Um, in, in Greek verbs, the perfect tense means, here, I think the perfect tense emphasizes the present effects arising from something in the past. I don't want to get bogged down here, but you need to understand what Paul's saying here. He says, all of the gains that I've got, all of the pluses, all of those wonderful things that my pedigree, my, my life, my orthodoxy, every achievement, every accomplishment, all of those things that to everybody else are saying they get you closer to God, they make you better for God, God loves you more, all of those things, I count them as a demerit, as rubbish. And he says, I counted it, that's something that I did in the past that affects who I am today. And because Paul did that in the past, the readers will understand they knew Paul's story. They will understand that Paul's referring to his Damascus Road experience. Paul is on the way. Look, Paul is all of those things that I talked about. And with all of those things, when Paul meets Jesus, he 
does not just a 180 in his life, but he changes the way he views all of that stuff. This is one of the most compelling reasons for faith I know. You don't find in history many people who for no reason at all will abdicate and abandon a wonderful upbringing and a wonderful life with great accomplishments and throw it all away for something that's so hard and difficult and unpleasant and in, in, in inconvenience to light a word. But Paul does. He says, that was just all garbage. I counted it that way. That's how I counted it then. And that's why I changed. And that's why I am the way I am today. Then he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And, and this, he, now the next verse, he does something else. He says, seriously, pay big time attention. And he does that by writing in weird ways. And repeating what he said. If you were reading the Greek, I'd, exp I'd explain the weirdness of the Greek here. But it stands out. Indeed, I count everything. Panta. I count everything as a loss. I count everything. Panta. Everything. Zamian. As a loss. In the loss column. Because of the surpassing worth. Huperekon, uh, uh, it's something higher on a list. Uh, th there's something so much more valuable than all of that. There's something so much more valuable than where you were born and who you were born to and how you were brought up and how you were living. There's something that exceeds in value all of your accomplishments, everything you pulled off in your life. And that surpassing worth is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This indeed, in the Greek, it's, it's it, well, I don't have time. And, uh, but I, I want you to see, I do count, he says, everything as a loss. Everything goes in that lost column. I wish I could communicate to you the great depth of what's happening here. Paul's entire world was destroyed by the choice he made. And yet for Paul, never a second doubt. He was fully confident. He knew who Jesus was. Jesus met him in a miraculous way on that road to Damascus, and it changed his life forever. He was willing to let everything be destroyed that he might know Christ. That's the way Paul challenged the Judaizers. And then he sets out what his goal is. And he says, for Jesus' sake... I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, skubala in the Greek, in order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, you know, I've suffered the loss. Again, that's the debits and credits. The debits. I've put it, everything I've put into that loss column. I've lost it all. I lost my shirt. I lost my retirement. I lost my family to some degree. I lost my position and my job. I lost my future within Judaism. I lost it all, but I count it as scubala, garbage, trash. In order that, and now he gives another bullet point list, so let's break it out. In order that I may gain Christ. That word gain, again, it's kerdeso. Now he's turned it into a verb here. But that's the profit column in the profit and loss statement. So I've taken everything that I had in the profit column. I've moved it over to the, to the loss column so that I could have Christ in the profit column. That I might gain Christ and be found in him. In auto, in him. As opposed to the law which he was finding his righteousness in before, now he's found in Christ. And so he's one who has a righteousness not of his own that comes from out of the law, but he's got one which is coming through faith in Christ Jesus. And that's what he's got here. And then he continues, he says, that I may know him. Now, the, the Greek word know and, and the Hebrew concept of know is not an, simply an intellectual awareness. It's an intimacy. It's used uh, for sexual unity, sexual intercourse, to know. You know, Adam knew Eve and she bore a child. It's, a, it's an intimate awareness. That's the same idea Jesus had in John 13, 17, 3, where he said, this is eternal life, that they know you, God, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life, to have this relationship with Christ. He says, I've traded it all to, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to have his righteousness, to know him, to know the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings. Koinonia is the share word. That's my Aspen Grove illustration. To be connected to the sufferings of Christ. To become like him in his death. To take on the form of Jesus in his death. And then that by any means possible... Any means possible. What he means is, in a sense, he says, I don't know how God does this, but somehow I'm going to get the resurrection from the dead. Paul didn't have all the answers. Even writing by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit didn't infuse him with that knowledge. So Paul's saying, you know, 
I'm going to become like him in his death. And then somehow, I don't know, but by any means possible, whatever it takes, I'm going to attain resurrection from the dead. And that's his goal. So how does Paul go about this? What's the process? Paul says, look, I haven't already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. If you get nothing else out of class, I want you to grab Paul's words here because Paul's making an image that we lose a little bit in the English, but it's beautiful. It's, 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 it is, um, it's, it's gripping. Here it is. You ready? Paul says, not that I have already obtained this. Elebon um, in the Greek uh, comes from lambano. Lambano is a word that means to take hold of or to grasp. It's, it's, it's to, to, to have it. And so Paul says, I, don't, I haven't grasped it yet. I haven't taken hold of it yet. In other words, I'm not already perfect because we get perfection in that day with Christ, with that resurrection from the dead. I don't have it yet. He says, but, uh, that's I'm not perfect yet, and there's tons I don't have time to talk about with that. Maybe I'll come back and visit this some, because this is, is just shouting out from 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, now we know in part, uh, we see in part, but then we'll know fully. Uh, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the complete, when we're made perfect, then we'll know fully as we're fully known. All of that comes into play here. If you're not tracking with me, forget I said it. I'll come back to it another time, I hope. Paul says, I don't grasp this yet. I don't have this in my hand, but I press on. Dioko is a word that means chase, to chase after. Can be translated persecute if you're chasing after for bad reasons. But the, the root of the idea is to chase after. Paul says, I don't have it in my hands yet, but I'm chasing after it. I'm running to get it. I'm pressing on. I'm going to get that. So I'm pressing on to make it my own. And here he's got that same word of lambano, except he's added kata, to, to aggressively hold on to it. I'm chasing it because I want it in my hands. I want to grasp it. I'm going for it. And then look what he says. I'm going for it because I want to grasp it. But he says, because, to make it my own, because, oh, I decided to retranslate this a little bit for you. I've all, not that I've already grabbed it. I don't already have it in my hand. But I press on to grab it. I'm chasing it to grab it. And here's the key reason why. Because Christ Jesus it's the same word. You can hardly tell it because the Greek forms get mixed up. But it means because Jesus has already grabbed me. Jesus has already grabbed me. I'm chasing it. I want to grab it and I want to lay hold of it because Jesus has already grabbed me. 
And that's his reason for chasing after it. So I asked myself when I was working through this, what am I chasing after? What am I chasing after? What are you chasing after in your life? You chasing after money? What are you chasing after in your life? A man? A woman? <laughs> what are you chasing after in your life? A career? Paul says, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. I haven't grasped it yet. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind all of that rubbish. And I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on. I chase Dioko. I press on. I chase the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, what are you chasing after? Paul answers it. I'm chasing after the upward call of God. That's what I'm pressing on for. Yes, Dale Hearn, I will do it. We have to do it. The Bob. Bob Dylan pressing on. don't have time to play the whole song but that song is worth playing that song's about three minutes of him pressing on and he's got the gospel choir coming in and and it is and there's a version of that also if you youtube it by alicia keys that's just like <sighs> but Paul, bob gets it from this passage what are you pressing on what are you chasing in life so here are your points to ponder and we will have made it through 73 slides. Paul had it all and saw it as garbage. Where am I finding my value? How do I orient my compass? What am I into this stuff for? Do I stand up here and teach to you because it's an ego trip? If so, God help me. Do I go to work and, 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 and try to do good things in the justice system because uh, it's going to enrich me? If I do, God help me. Or because it's going to make my reputation? If I do, God help me. Or because I don't have anything else to do in my life and I'm kind of bored and it's something that I'm talented at? If so, God help me. I want to live through the prism that Paul did that sees everything in terms of Jesus Christ and his gospel. I want, I want to know that Christ has grabbed me and I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to share in his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his death 
And I want to trust that he is going to bring me to resurrection from the dead so that I can live eternally within his plans. And if I want to live eternally for Jesus, heaven forbid I don't live for him now. Can I genuinely say I want to live and serve God eternally if I don't want to live and serve him today? And oh, the distractions. I'm looking at two young men right here. You guys, Oliver, how old are you? Twelve. How old's your brother? Sixteen? Stand up, you two. I'm just going to abuse you right now. I'm going to tell you both something. And y'all testify if I'm right. This world is going to try and so take and distract you from the mission of the calling of Jesus. It's going to throw everything your way. It's going to throw people. It's going to throw um, substances. It's going to throw so many things to try to distract you from the calling of Christ. And you need to have that laser focus and chase after the one who has grabbed you all your days. Thank you. But not just him. Not just them. All of us. I've got a couple of ladies up here who are even older than I am. In physical age, you would never tell it by looking at them. And they're not in their heart. But the same is true for y'all. You've still got the opportunity to live today more so than you ever have before, grasping and chasing after the one who has grabbed you. It's all profits and losses. See, I want to re-examine my priorities. I'm worried I've put things in the profit column that belong over in the loss column. That profit column is big enough for one thing and one thing alone, and that's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the calling He's put on our life. And I know I haven't arrived yet, but I also know what I'm chasing. I am pressing on to the higher calling of my Lord. Because that is Paul on target, and that's where I want to be. Are you all ready for church? We 73 slides in. It's time to go to church. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for every listening ear and open heart. Father, convict us. May your Holy Spirit just pierce us. Pierce the hardness of our hearts, the dullness of our brains, the coldness of our emotions. Pierce, Father. Let us feel your grip. And instill in us a desire to run and chase after knowing you. That's our prayer and our hope and our confidence in Jesus our Lord. Amen.